Okay, um, right, I'm an obstetrician and I work here in Plymouth and in fact I look after a lot of the medical, complica um, medical um, complicated patients who decide to get pregnant um, with the help of, I do a weekly clinic with Kate and colleagues looking after pre-existing diabetics. I've got some very juicy cardiac cases that David and I look after together. Um, so I'm trying to cover everything, which is basically I could lecture for a week on this subject. Um, in fact, just per um, medical complication, I could talk for probably an hour or two. So I'm trying to give you a little vignette and point you in the way of um, further reading um, to cover things. Now I'm just going to quickly go through some background. Okay, the ageing antenatal population. Um, there is no doubt that, although in the UK you don't get many people in their 60s having babies, I've had three ladies who've gone on health tourism who've come back with an ovum donation pregnancy in their late 50s and early 60s. Okay. Um, there is also a definite shift in the median age of first pregnancy. In 1982, the median age of women in their first pregnancy was 23. It's now 31. Okay, so people, and it's not uncommon for people in their first pregnancy being in their 40s now, and certainly in certain parts of uh, the UK, particularly around Chelsea and Westminster, over 25% of their population, the primips, are over 40, and often very high-achieving and demanding patients as well. <sighs> Already been hinted at, but we have massive patients. Uh, as my colleagues have hinted at quite how they get pregnant, sometimes does... Um, come to mind, but I have got a number of ladies with a morbid obesity. We're talking super morbid obesity. We're talking BMIs in the 60s, BNIs in the 70s. Um, I think my, my, my record so far since I've been a consultant in 14 years is BMI of 81. Um, but they do cause major problems <coughs> and um, Daryl's already hinted at all the problems that they give. There's also a high morbidity and mortality rate among ethnic groups, and that's not so much of an issue here in the southwest, but there's no doubt that we have patients who have sickle cell disease, we have patients with unidentified mitral valve disease. David has already mentioned the fact we have two close shaves with patients who are immigrants here in the southwest, and we didn't pick up on their critical rheumatic heart disease. Um, and quite often they're not aware of their underlying health problems, and they don't know how to access health um, services, um, and that's been a major issue from the maternal mortality reports, is actually translation services and people knowing how to get in to see their midwife, see their GP, and let alone see someone like me. Okay, and there's no doubt that survival to adulthood, and when you're an adult, you think you're going to have a baby, and they all seem to, and we've got, we've had some corking grown-up congenital heart disease patients. There's also, I've had a number of patients with cystic fibrosis now, who have gone on to have pregnancy, whereas that was unheard of 20, 30 years ago, because they didn't survive to reproductive, uh, the reproductive age. Now, a little bit of background regarding sort of maternal mortality long-term. Back in the 1840s, because there was no contraception, per pregnancy you stood about a 1 in 200, well, 1 in 100 chance of dying. But because you had a number of pregnancies, you had a 1 in 6 chance of dying due to a pregnancy complication from early miscarriage, ectopic, through to purple um, sepsis. And purple sepsis, does that, does you, do you all know about Semmelweis? No? Okay, Semmelweis was a, an Austrian um, obstetrician who noticed that the obstetricians 
who looked after the pregnant ladies who would go and do a post-mortem, wouldn't wash their hands and then go and do the next delivery and they all dropped dead of purple sepsis. So he brought in this concept that you had to wash your hands and he was laughed out of town and threatened, but it had been shown that his hospital where he introduced that had a significantly lower um, maternal death rate due to purple sepsis. Um, and actually, it wasn't until the first antibiotic was used, um, just before the Second World War, that a significant drop in maternal mortality happened. Before then, the previous hundred years, we have been monitoring maternal mortality, um, it had still been the case. Okay, this is a little bit of history, more recent, from sort of just before the Second World War to now, and there's significant drops in maternal mortality due to all causes. Some of that is due to blood transfusion, some of that is due to... Um, identification of pregnancy, early pregnancy complications, um, use of antibiotics, um, and in 1967, oops, sorry, in 1967, the one piece of legislation that came in that uh, the backstreet abortions, um, that maternal deaths from um, backstreet abortions basically became unheard of after 19, approximately 1970. Okay, our triennial reports have been going on since 1953. It's the longest ongoing mortality review, national mortality review in the world, and it is used by every other country in the world as a benchmark of the standards of, of developed country maternal medicine. Okay, the most recent one, whoops, the most recent one was published um, in 2011, but relates to the deliveries between 2006 and 2008, because I'm one of the National Maternal Mortality Assessors. It takes quite a while to analyse one maternal mortality a case, um, and there's 16 of us working on the current um, next publication that will be coming out in a, within the next year. Okay, now Daryl hinted at this. This shows actually how we've improved significantly since um, Call the Midwife era of um, the early 50s. And what's really interesting is the fact that even though our risk factors in our general population have massively increased, they're older, they're fatter, they're certainly smoking a lot more, that actually the number of people who have died of a clot has significantly reduced. And this is one of the big success stories, because since 1995, actually, there have been progressive um, reviews of actually screening all our antenatal patients from booking repeatedly as the pregnancy progresses, use of antenatal clexane prophylaxis um, and postnatal <coughs> prophylaxis depending on what risk factors they had during labour and delivery. Um, and even just between 2003-2005 to the most recent report, there's been a halving again in our maternal mortality from thromboembolism. So that's a really good story, okay, but if you look at our numbers of other causes of direct death, there's no doubt that sepsis is on the increase. And um, just to give you a little bit of a hint of things to come, you think it was bad here. I know that it's going to be up here in the next triennial report because we have had massive numbers of sepsis maternal deaths since the last triennial report published, and I've reviewed a number of them. Okay, so it was the biggest cause of death. Um, compared to direct cause of death and group A strep, um, uh, group B strep, uh, streptococcus or strep pyogenes was by far the most common cause, um, accounting for half the maternal deaths. And these were, these were previously fit and healthy skinny multips. These were women who came in, had a normal delivery, midwifery led care, went home six hours later, 
But then three days later, they presented and were dead within 24 hours. And almost all of them had younger kids, most of them with sore throats at home, so they'd wipe little Johnny's nose and uh, managed to con contaminate themselves with group B strep, uh, strep A. Okay, so the strep pyogenes, the rate is going up. Okay, and the symptoms tend to be quite non-specific. Flu-type ill um, feelings, often a bit of offensive vaginal discharge and heavy PV bleeding, but that's not uncommon in the early postnatal period. But what really throws people is, as Daryl said, they often come in without a pyrexia, um, but they come in with GI symptoms. Quite often they've got severe abdominal pain and diarrhea and vomiting, so people think they've got an acute gastroenteritis. But by the time you get the bloods back, these ladies are in multi-organ failure. By the time you get them to intensive care, three hours later, they're um, already on the on the point of death. And actually, it doesn't matter how much you do with vasodilators and resuscitation, you just can't get them back. And they die very rapidly. And these ladies normally, from first presentation, are dead within 24 hours. Okay. However, maternal mortality is actually probably just the tip of the iceberg. There was um, a very interesting um, national audit done in Scotland at the same time as the 2003-2005 maternal mortality report was done. And they had 845 admissions to intensive care and 572 women that had a PPH you'd consider life-threatening, over two and a half litres. So we're not talking a little bit of blood. We're talking big kahuna bleed here. Um, and if you extrapolate that to the UK figures... And in those three years, we had over 2 million maternities. So they would have had 7,744 causes of uh, major postpartum hemorrhage. And these ladies would have gone through an HDU, ITU environment afterwards. But in that time, there are only 14 maternal deaths from postpartum hemorrhage. So the message is, we'd look at the 14 deaths and isn't that terrible, but actually there are probably at least 500 women for that one maternal death um, who have come pretty close to dying. Okay, now I want to try and give you a whistle-stop tour in the next sort of 15, 20 minutes of everything that can go wrong with the patient um, and problems which they have pre-existing that they decide it's a good idea to have babies. So for, first of all, epilepsy. Very common in young women. Um, it can be primary or secondary. Um, particularly a problem because of women... Um, are concerned about their anti-epileptic medication and often omit to take their anti-epileptic uh, medication. And we know that there is an excess in maternal deaths in epilepsy when they're pregnant than when they're not pregnant, and there's also an excess in the sudden adult death in epilepsy when they're pregnant than when you're not. We have had maternal deaths from epilepsy in the postnatal period. Um, normally it's either asphyxiation um, during a, a tonic-clonic seizure or it is a, a sudden adult death without um, seizure activity. There's also, as I've got a lot of physicians here, a real issue with one particular um, um, uh, medication, which is sodium valparate, which is particularly use useful for the myoclonic um, fits. But as well as it having a high incidence in fetal abnormalities, there is no doubt there is a massive excess in the number of children who are being statemented for special educational needs and have severe neuro neurodevelopmental issues related to being exposed to sodium valparate, particularly at high dose or multi-therapy. And we are seeing sodium valparate being used by psychiatrists as a mood stabiliser as well. And it really should not be used in women of childbearing age. 
Problem is, by the time I see them, they've already been on it during the embryopic period. Okay, next stroke. Stroke is no doubt it's one of the most common causes of um, maternal death um, along with subarachnoid hemorrhage. It can be embolic um, and it could be ischemic. Ischemic, we've had two maternal deaths from ischemic um, cerebral events due to atheroma in their uh, common carotid. The um, ischemic tend to be in the middle cerebral um, artery and common carotid distribution. And if you're 43 and you're a smoker and you've got a BMI of 40 and you have hyperlipidemia and type 2 diabetes, your likelihood of having underlying atheroma is pretty high. Um, so it's not a surprise that sometimes when they also get a bit of superimposed preeclampsia and um, hypertension that they then go and get a stroke. The embolic strokes, um, they tend to be more associated with um, a, either patent foramen ovale um, or um, hypertension and preeclampsia. Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage kills about five women a year. Although, obviously, everyone noted that cardi cardiac causes are the most common direct cause of maternal death, neurological causes are the second most common um, cause of death. Um, <coughs> classically, it tends to be in the um, uh, early postnatal period um, and vague symptoms, sometimes with convulsions, headache, um, and they're associated with aneurysms. More commonly, you'll get bleeds and these if they've had hypertensive disease in pregnancy, so preeclampsia. Um, and unfortunately, poor control of hypertension in pregnancy, if your systolic is above 160, is an independent risk factor for intracranial bleeding. Okay, and our cerebral vein thrombosis. Um, because pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, we get women who get cerebral vein thrombosis classically, again, most commonly in the early postnatal period. Um, and again, they can present with um, seizure activity, headaches, evidence of raised uh, intracranial pressure. Um, and to image this, you often need to do either CT or MRI venogram, um, um, but it needs to be considered. Um, we've had three patients with cerebral vein thrombosis since I've been a consultant here. Okay. Respiratory problems. Asthma. Classically, women don't like taking their medication because they're worried about the effect of the pregnancy. Most of the time, asthma gets better because all, all <coughs> immune-related diseases in general get better in pregnancy and worse in the postnatal period because of your depressed T-cell immunity so that you don't reject your pregnancy. But women who don't take it, don't their, take, particularly their prophylactic medication, so they don't take their inhaled steroids, can get a severe asthmatic um, uh, crisis and be um, very unwell. So they need to be educated about using their um, both their dilators and their steroids more frequently. And now actually the, the <coughs> asthma nurses, with the education that they do on a one-to-one -one basis, um, and sometimes women having emergency oral steroids at home, um, have made the acute admissions with asthma, certainly in patients who are pregnant, much less common. Cystic fibrosis, I hinted at the beginning, um, had two pregnancies with cystic fibrosis. Um, they are particularly challenging because they have already got significant lung pathology and all their needs with malnutrition and as well as their need for antibiotics and, um, and regular uh, physiotherapy. Remember also the impact it can have on the, um, on the pancreas. And we've had one of our ladies has had, um, uh, 
diabetes, as well as actually she had cirrhosis and esophageal varices on top of her cystic fibrosis. So she was a really um, interesting patient to look after. But we got a normal delivery out of um, out of her and a successful pregnancy and postnatal discharge. So that was a success. Pneumonias. Now these are going to be coming up in the next triennial report. Um, it's going to be a significant increase in the number of women who've died from pneumonia in pregnancy. Most common it's strep pneumonia in more than 50% of pregnancy cases. But Haemophilus influenza if they've got chronic bronchitis and Staphylococcus if they've also already had a, an influenza infection. There's also Legionella and Mycoplasma, the community acquired um, um, pneumonias. But more, most importantly to remember is your chicken pox pneumonitis. If you get um, chicken pox when you're pregnant and you get oral vesicles, you are very likely to develop a pneumonitis and it's got a 30% mortality. I've seen two women die of chicken pox in pregnancy due to pneumonitis. It is a horrible condition. They don't, it tends to be particularly virulent in pregnancy. So unfortunately, 80, well, fortunately, 80% of our pregnant ladies are already immune to, um, varicella, but 20% aren't. And of course, by definition, if they've had children already, their children are often going off to the play school and coming back with chicken pox. And if they don't realize they've never had it, it can then be an absolute disaster. Um, so they need to be taken very seriously. We want to keep them away from our antenatal clinics until they're really bad, and then we want them straight into an isolation room if they've got this. And um, But if someone is non-immune, we actually use um, ZIG um, uh, and hope that we can ameliorate the development of the disease before they do. The other thing to remember is if influenza, for the last three years, we have been really banging the drum to get all our pregnant ladies to get the annual food drab because um, pregnancy and influenza don't go well together. There is a significant excess in maternal mortality compared to age match controls of people with the same risk factors who are non-pregnant. In 2009, we had 14 women die from H1N1 who were pregnant. And the majority of those were smokers. If you're a smoker and you're pregnant and you've got a co comorbidity such as diabetes, it is vital that you get your immunity due to um, influenza because it, it it every year it claims um, pregnant lives. Okay. Diabetes, I can only skim over this. We're using pumps much more, but the things that tend to kill the mums are either... Um, an overdose of their insulin or ketoacidosis. Um, and we've had two maternal deaths here <coughs> since I've been a consultant. One was an overdose of um, insulin. Um, patient was very random with her doses of insulin. Another case was um, a lady post-delivery who actually had thromb uh, thrombotic stroke um, due to her type 2 diabetes hypertension and she was a smoker and she was 40 and everything else that went into the mix. Okay, thyroid disease. Um, a little bit a little bit overactive, a little bit underactive is very standard, but it's the untreated hypothyroidism that can give you thyroid storm. And a, a thyroid storm with your cardiac failure has um, an up to 50% failure rate, uh, maternal mortality rate. So it's very serious that you identify people who have hypothyroidism early it has a risk to the pregnancy and risk of miscarriage, but um, if it's untreated, these patients need intensive care management and can be particularly challenging. 
Okay. Pituitary disease don't tend to cause many problems unless they're unidentified before pregnancy. Um, hyperprolactinomas in general don't get pregnant without a bit of help with carbogoline. Um, diabetes insipidus, you tend to need more um, because your pregnancy increases your um, uh, vasopressin, um, also your, your placenta will metabolize the vasopressin more. So you tend to find about a 60% increase in your need for treatment. But sometimes someone might have diabetes insipidus and not realize, and they can present quite severely dehydrated with electrolyte imbalances, which can be life-threatening. Uh, again, with hypopituitarism, if it's known about and they're on appropriate steroid replacement, it's not a problem. But if you get someone with an unidentified hypopituitarism, they can present with hypoth um, hypotension and low blood sugars. And there is an up to 10% mortality rate with that. Cushing syndrome, again, it's unlikely that you would think that someone could be pregnant without knowing about it. But striae and obesity... And hypertension is about half of Plymouth. So, um, and if you do have Cushing syndrome, very high incidence of early onset severe preeclampsia and death due to hypertensive disease. So it is serious if you don't know about it. Same goes for adrenal disease. If you know about it, they tend to run a very quiescent course. But if you've got an unidentified Addison's disease, um, that again, you can have an Addisonian crisis and that has an up to 5% mortality rate. Theochromocytomas. In pregnancy, it tends to be the paroxysmal hypertension associated with the flushes and the, and the hot sweats. We've had two ladies where we didn't know they had theochromocytoma until later in pregnancy. One of them, actually, her first presenting feature was um, impaired glucose tolerance. Um, from the um, theochromocytoma. She was a skinny BMI 20, fit as a butcher's dog physio who wanted everything to be all normal, wanted a home water birth. And 90% of the theochromocytomas tend to be in the adrenals, um, but she had a pelvic one sitting just where the baby's head was going down into the pelvis in the sympathetic plexus. And we ended up doing a caesarean section plus attempted resection with John Shaw. Couldn't find it. She ended up having to have a further surgery to have it removed about three months later. But even if you know about it and you've got them on alpha blockers and then you bring in the beta blockers, they've got a 3 to 5% mortality rate. An unidentified pheochromocytoma has got up to 20% mortality rate. So you want to do your free catecholamines on those ladies with their funny blood pressures. In fact, I'm doing one on some patient, a patient on the ward as we speak. Con syndrome, particularly those with a low potassium, very rare that we we would see it before it's been identified, but there has been, you know, a, a, we've raised the possibility on one case where a lady had a sodium of about 2.7. Turned out it wasn't Con syndrome, but we must mustn't forget that occasional cause of hypertension. And again, adrenal congenital adrenal hypertension don't tend to get pregnant very much, <laughs> um, but if they do, then obviously there's quite a few problems that can occur, particularly depending on what sex fetus they carry. Anyway, right, whistle stop to, to the bowels and liver. Inflammatory bowel disease, classically, because it's an immune-driven process, it gets better during pregnancy, um, but they get a classically a bad relapse post-delivery. However, if you get pregnant at the time of a flare, and this is the same for any autoimmune condition, you tend to have a pretty rocky time. And you can get a, an acute megacolon and need a laparotomy and a total bowel resection. If you get a bowel looking like that... Um, in pregnancy, particularly it causes problems with um, 
anemia and um, severe pain as well. Next, uh, appendicitis. Your gravid uterus tends to push your cecum up and out of the way and quite often you'll find that your appendix is sitting around the kidney or sort of round the back of the uterus and it can make it very difficult to identify in the early stages and surgeons hate operating on pregnant ladies um, and quite often you can end up with someone who's got a perforated um, uh, perforated uh, appendix before they'll actually take them to theatre. Um, um, and it can it, it is associated with the maternal mortality rate and in fact our most recent one was actually a uh, member of uh, a, a, a doctor from one of the departments in the hospital and um, I had to really bang to get the surgeons to take it to theatre and it was a very smelly appendix at 30 weeks so it can be a real problem okay bowel hepatitis unfortunately pregnancy does not protect you um, I've Got one lady recently who actually contracted um, hepatitis B. Next thing she knew, she woke up in King's um, intensive care, having had a liver transplant, um, who I then looked after in her pregnancy. And we do get a number of ladies with um, chronic active hepatitis, risks to the fetus, risks for cirrhosis, um, which I'll talk about in a bit. Acute fatty liver pregnancy and help syndrome. Um, they're probably part of the same spectrum. The interesting thing about acute fatty liver is there seems to be an association, at least with some of the people who get this, with having there being a heterozygous for carrying um, for LCAD, and particularly if they carry a baby who's homozygous for LCAD, they will get acute fatty liver. So if you have a baby who is screened for LCAD, actually you need to look back at the mums and watch them in next pregnancy because they are at risk of developing a recurrent acute fatty liver. In the past, we used to quote up to 50% mortality rate, but because we identify it much more early and intervene with delivery much more frequently, the mortality rate now is around 3%. Okay, And it is rare that a patient should need a liver transplant, acute liver transplant for this, um, although they still do, unfortunately, appear in our maternal mortality reports. It's quite difficult sometimes to tell the difference between this and HELP syndrome. HELP syndrome is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets, which is sort of an end-stage pathophysiology of preeclampsia. With acute fatty liver of pregnancy, you don't tend to get much hypertension and proteinuria. You tend to get very low blood sugars, raised white cell counts, okay, um, and your platelet count stays normal, yet you're clotting, you get quite a bad coagulopathy. Whereas with HELP syndrome, you tend to get very low platelets, and quite often you don't get a coagulopathy with the processes. Um, it's only about 10% will get a coagulopathy with HELP syndrome. But quite often you'll have us all scratching our heads to deciding you've got a transaminase of 3,000 and you don't know is it the liver because of acute fatty liver or is it the liver because of HELP syndrome. Either way, you deliver them. You put them on intensive care and hope that things get better and if they get worse, you'd call your liver specialists. Okay, cirrhosis. We're getting a number of ladies with cirrhosis either due to primary bilious cirrhosis or alcohol cirrhosis, or hepatitis cirrhosis, who are then being pregnant. And I've looked after a number of ladies with esophageal varices. Now, esophageal varices, more likely to bleed in pregnancy, particularly more likely to pop during second stage of labour. So, myself and our hematology, uh, and our, uh, hepatology colleagues, uh, we like to electively section these. But if you can imagine, you've got all the alternative routes back to the heart through the anterior abdominal wall. It can make for quite a hairy caesarean section as well. Anyway, I like living in the, in the interesting. 
uh, part of obstetrics. Liver transplant. We've had uh, three ladies with a liver transplant now who have um, uh, carried pregnancies to term. They have all ended up with a cesarean section. And it's not because I haven't desperately tried to get a vaginal delivery out of them, and they've all struggled through with the discomfort of carrying a gravid uterus through an abdomen like this. Um, but unfortunately, it um, yeah didn't work. So I think I'm going to give up on trying to get them through a vaginal delivery. Gallbladder disease. Do you think about all the risk factors for gallbladder disease for medical school? Fat, fair, fair, or female, furry, which is the whole of... <laughs> Plymouth antenatal clinic um, but acute gallbladder disease with cholangitis we have need sometimes need to take gallbladders out in pregnancy um, and that can be quite tricky especially if you've got a gravid uterus almost up to the zippy sternum getting in there can be quite an effort um, but if you don't they can become um, very very unwell and of course also the gallstone can pop down in the wrong place and most common cause of pancreatitis in pregnancy is, gall, is, is gallstone disease. Um, and pancreatitis has a 10% mortality rate. So it's a, a supportive, multidisciplinary, intensive care management with pancreatitis. Um, and so it's check on the amylase along with all your other baseline bloods. Okay, connective tissue diseases. Okay, rheumatoid arthritis, much more common in women. Um, classically, they um, get better during pregnancy and get a massive flare-up post-delivery because of the immune response. Um, we don't like non-steroidals if we can avoid them, so we tend to manage them with um, simple painkillers and steroids if necessary. Um, remember, any ladies with either rheumatoid, SLE or antiphospholipid or to think about the anti-rare and anti-lar antibodies, they can cross the placenta and give fetal heart block, which is permanent. It means the baby needs to be paced for the rest of its life after birth. Um, systemic lupus erythematosus tends to be either mild and unproblematic, particularly if it's been over six months since a flare. But if you've got a recent nephritis, or you currently conceive during a bad flare and you've got organ involvement with hypertension, thrombus, or renal involvement, you can have quite a quite a high-risk um, pregnancy, and they are associated with maternal mortalities. A number of the maternal mortalities in the next report is going to be people who um, had a sudden event, either, either antenatally or postnatally, um, a thrombotic, life-ending life thrombotic event um, with systemic lupus erythematosus. So we like to see these ladies pre-pregnancy so we can warn them not to get pregnant during a flare. Antiphospholipid syndrome, Classically, they get arterial and venous clots and have an awful obstetric history. We tend to manage them with a combination of aspirin and um, uh, clexane. Um, but again, they're much more likely to get both a venous and an arterial clot in pregnancy. And those can be things like cerebral vein thrombosis um, and um, be life-threatening. So these are, these are very high-risk patients. Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, um, classically it's the type 4 which has a 25% mortality rate, so that's the vascular type. Um, but also the women with the more of the stretchy subluxing joints and the funny skin. Terrible wound healing. Um, often they can deliver spontaneously through their perineum or their rectum. Um, massive risk of PPH, um, uterine rupture. Um, so they can be pretty hairy to look after. Um, and they also have a higher incidence of thromboembolic disease. Scleroderma tends to get better in pregnancy with regards the um, oops, sorry, the Raynaud's 
problem because you get an increased circulating volume. Um, so uranus tends to get better. But if you've got either renal or lung involvement from your scleroderma, you're, you can actually end up in a renal crisis and a significant postnatal deterioration which can lead to death. So it depends if you've got systemic effects of the scleroderma. But remember also that they have real problems with the anaesthetic. You've got a, a mouth that doesn't really open, and you've got a back that often the skin won't let you get a needle in. So they can be really challenging for someone like Daryl um, to manage, um, because quite often they end up needing operative deliveries. Okay, renal disease. Daryl was already mentioned about uh, urinary infection, but urinary tract infection can cause miscarriage can cause preterm labour, but major sepsis leading to maternal death is not uncommon with E. coli urinary tract infections, and they shouldn't be underestimated. Chronic kidney disease, most common is reflux nephropathy, but any of those, classically these women are already hypertensive and already proteinuric, and then they decide to present to me in pregnancy. They classically get early superimposed preeclampsia, and it's very difficult to tell the difference because you're already proteinuric and hypertensive, but it's Gram increases in your protein loss and significant increase in need of antihypertensives. Um, your outcome of your pregnancy depends on your baseline creatinine and kidney function. And if you've got severe kidney um, impairment with creatinine over 250, your likely take-home baby rate is less than 10% because you end up with early miscarriage and very severe early growth retardation. And of course, there are many things in pregnancy that can cause you to have an acute renal injury. Um, drugs, medications preeclampsia, massive blood loss, all of which can cause major problems. And we're getting a number of ladies now with renal transplant. Okay, I'm actually going to skip through those. Okay, bleeding disorders, um, unfortunately, von Willebrand's disease tends to get a bit better in pregnancy, um, but classically these levels of von Willebrand factor plummet within a, a few minutes of delivery and they get massive early PPHs. Same with the haemophilias, the ladies haemophilia A or haemophilia B, um, normally they're a carrier so it's not an issue and you've got all the problems about male carrier, male fetuses, but actually sometimes they can have lionization of that gene and behave um, like a, a haemophilia affected and they may well need um, DDAVP um, or transamic acid depending on whether it's haemophilia A or B, but it's usually haematologists. Sickle cell disease, sorry I skipped over that, sickle cell disease has a maternal mortality rate up to 10% because they're much more likely to get the crisis, much more likely to get severe embolization, particularly thromboembolic disorders with sickle, sickle cell ladies. And I think we forget down here how important even sickle cell carrier status is. Um, and um, certainly it, it's a particular problem in certain other parts of the country. And I'm going to skip through hemolytic uremic syndrome because it's very uncommon, but it's not affected by delivering the baby. This is the one thing, hemolytic uremic syndrome and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, high mortality rate, delivering doesn't seem to make any difference. They're very, very sick. Okay. Quick whiz through the drugs. It's the first 14 weeks when the embryo goes from a little bag of cells to a little baby that just needs to then get to a bigger baby. So it's exposure of medications in the first 14 weeks you want to try and avoid. Okay, don't assume your placenta is a block. They used to think back in 30 years ago, your placenta stopped everything. No, it does not. Okay, because it depends on the size of your molecule. Big molecules don't tend to cross, but also the polarity and if it's lipophilic. Okay, but almost all drugs do cross the placenta. Not all, but almost all. And most of them are not necessarily metabolised by the fetal liver because it's very immature. Okay. 
Just to give a background rate about drugs in pregnancy, background malformation rate is 3 to 5% of all pregnancies. If you take cleft palate, about 1 in 1,000 pregnancies. If you wanted a drug to find out whether it doubled the rate of cleft palate and it had an 80% power, you'd need 23,000 women taking the drug in a randomised uh, randomized arms. Variable drug effects. Only 20% of women who took thalidomide in pregnancy had affected babies with the limb reduction defects. Okay, and actually the value of preclinical trials giving massive doses to mice when they have different physiology probably is not helpful to our knowledge of whether it's safe in pregnancy. So most of prescribing in pregnancy is outside license, okay, and we work on these principles. Okay, prescribe only if benefit increases um, is greater than risk. Use the smallest dose, okay. Do not assume the placental barrier is any use at all, okay and choose drugs which have been around a long time. My primary antihypertensive is methyl dopa, and I think you probably look at it as a historical footnote, um, but it's been around a long time and it's safe, and it's pretty well tolerated. Okay, if you're gonna shine some rays at the mum, chest x-ray is just the same as flying to the States, okay? So anything, do not delay doing a chest x-ray. Number of maternal mortalities probably could have been avoided if they'd investigated earlier, okay? Minimal teeny tiny dose. You can give up to five rad in pregnancy. Okay, this is tiny. Okay, MRI scan, no radiation exposure, and you get fabulous views. It's particularly good at looking at fetal brains. When I'm <laughs> scanning, because I do fetal medicine, and I find a fetal abnormality that's a brain abnormality, I send them for an MRI scan. Um, brilliant views, but physically they've got to be able to get down the tube, and about 5% of women get panic attacks because of the claustrophobia. And it's very noisy. Have any of you had MRI scans? It's very noisy. Okay. Um, CTPAs. Again, the um, exposure is actually not high at all, and you can shield the fetus. Um, so the exposure depends. It's very, very small in first trimester because the fetus is way, way away from the chest. By the time you get to third trimester, probably the feet get a bit of a shine, okay, which should get tucked underneath the ribs. Um, but... It's more of a concern is actually the exposure of the, of the breast tissue for future risk of breast cancer, but that incidence is one in 10,000. Okay, so this concern about fetuses is tiny. Okay, VQ scans about the same as CTPAs. So you shouldn't not do the investigation because a clot can kill. Okay, so in summary, <sighs> loads of women with disastrous medical complications are deciding to become pregnant and normally turning up in my antenatal clinic. And I am getting so many ladies who, actually, we have to have special big chairs. We have actually got a couch that's the size of a double bed in one of our antenatal clinics because they can't take, they can't lie on a normal bed without breaking them. And our birth rate in the UK is going up. Yeah, the last 10 years, our birth rate's going up. So I'm just going to get busier. So, any questions?